This episode of My Weird Record Collection discusses one or more records that have religious content. Having said that, nothing said in this episode, or any other episode of this podcast for that matter, is meant to be interpreted as promotion, rejection, or mockery of any religious views, or lack thereof. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. friends. I'm Sean, and welcome to episode one of my weird record collection. In this episode, we're going to explore as deeply as possible the singing Johnson family. Now, in the introductory episode of this podcast, I talked about ways that you can build, maintain, and play your record collection. But there's one important thing I should mention, how to catalog what you have and keep track of it as your collection builds. Because there may come a time when you might want an album or a variation of something you already have, and you're not quite sure if you actually already have that variation. So it's a good practice to keep track of your collection. And the truth is, there's no right way to do it. There's no wrong way to do it. Whatever works for you is uh, what works for you. For years, my wife and I simply used an Excel spreadsheet. We had columns for artist, title, label, uh, miscellaneous, and, uh, well, I don't remember what else we had columns for because, well, unfortunately, over the years, we became very lax in maintaining that list. We used to print out that list and take it with us to record stores, record shows, Beetlefest, uh, other places where we planned to buy records. Now, during this episode and probably future episodes, you are going to hear me refer to a website called Discogs.com. That's D-I-S-C-O-G-S dot com. It's a really good quick reference website for basically any kind of audio releases, records, CDs, tapes, other media. And if you create an account on Discogs.com, you can use that site to track your own collection. And it's really easy to do, actually. You can add categories, and as you add to your collection, you can put something in a different category. But what's really cool is that you can find the different label and cover variations. So that way, you can keep track of every little detail about the records that you have. If you happen to have a variation that's not listed on Discogs.com or even a title that's not on Discogs.com, well, guess what? You can add it yourself. But one of the really neat things about Discogs.com is that if you're out in the wild at an antique shop, a record convention, or whatever, and you are considering an album, you're not really sure if you may already have it in your collection, you don't remember if you bought it last time you saw it, or if it's a variation you might be interested in, you don't recall which variation you already have, well, 
guess what? You can open up Discogs.com on your smartphone or use its phone app and check out your collection when you're on the go. Now, I do need to disclaim this. I have absolutely nothing to do with Discogs.com other than that I am one of its users. That's it. I don't work for Discogs.com. They're not paying me to plug them. Um, Although I'm not saying I'd turn it down if they offered. I just thought I should mention it. Now, let's get on with this episode's feature, The Singing Johnson Family. I'll take you back to August of 2004. At the time, I lived in New Jersey, but was in Chicago. My wife Lisa and I were big Beatles fans, and we'd come out to the Chicago area every August for Beatlefest, now known as the Fest for Beatles Fans. We'd spend a few days in the suburbs to visit my parents, and then we'd spend a few days in the city, and then head to the fest in Rosemont out by O'Hare. But during the few days we were in Chicago, we went to a vintage shop called Land of the Lost, located on Belmont near Broadway. That shop sadly closed a few years ago. But anyway, back in 2004 when we were there, I browsed through a box of records and happened upon this seemingly odd-looking album simply called The Singing Johnson Family. The cover had a teal background. On the bottom half on the left was a black and white picture of the family. To the right was a white cross. Now, I should mention that this was at the height of that bad album covers meme that was the rage in the mid-2000s. Not that the album cover is particularly bad, there's nothing wrong with it, really. But in terms of your standard album cover, it does look a little bit awkward and religious, of course. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing, mind you. It's just that when, like me, you're not the most religious person in the world, and personally not the least religious in the world either, mind you, it just kind of sticks out. And because of my immature sense of humor, the word Johnson made me giggle. Best of all, the album had a price tag of three bucks. Not a bad price for such a curiosity. Lisa thought I was a whack job for buying it, but I didn't care. It fascinated me, and it continues to fascinate me to this day. I'll tell you what I was able to gather just from the album itself. The Singing Johnson family is from Southport, Indiana, a very nearby suburb of Indianapolis. The family includes Father Harry, Mother Betty, their son Harry Jr., also known as Bud, who was 13 years old at the time, and daughters Karen and Sharon, ages 12 and 8, respectively. I'm guessing Karen sang alto because the liner notes written by David G. Shepard say that she had, and I quote, a very difficult fourth part. Anybody who's ever sang alto will tell you how crazy it'll make you. Sharon was the lead singer. Wow, an Indiana singing group in which the youngest child is the lead singer. The Johnsons were the original Jackson 5. Or were they? Well, the Jackson 5 debuted on record in 1969, but what about the singing Johnson family? The thing is, there are no indications whatsoever as to when this album was recorded or released. Unfortunately, the only clue I had was the picture of the Johnsons. Judging by the very conservative hairstyles, I guessed late 50s, maybe early 60s. I'll get back to that later. Now, speaking of a picture of the Johnsons, sometime after I got back home to New Jersey, I noticed there was a photograph inside the album cover. 
It looks like the picture was taken around the same time as the album cover photograph, except eh, this picture has a fourth child, a boy, who appears to be the youngest of the bunch. Who is this young one, though? Well, the liner notes on the back cover do mention another Johnson child, but uh, no name. Oh, not only do I have that picture of the Johnsons, but the back cover is autographed by four of them. Everybody but Bud. Sharon's is very faded, which makes me think that Bud may also have signed it at some point, but it could have completely faded. Next to Betty's signature is a Bible citation, Romans chapter 8, verse 31, which, as per the New International Version, is, and I quote, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? As for the technical details, the album was published by Motif Records. Now, this album is so obscure that it wasn't even on Discogs.com until I added it myself. Somebody later on linked Motif Records in that entry to another label of the same name based out in Hollywood. Well, I assure you it is not that same Motif Records. There's no identifying information for that label, no logo, no address, no nothing. But I'm guessing it's probably a very local label based somewhere in or within shouting distance of Indianapolis. After all, the album was recorded at Studio Sound in Kokomo, about 65 miles north of the Johnsons' home in Southport. And given how local this record is, I highly doubt that the master, a Scotch 201 low-noise tape according to the liner notes, <laughs> was shipped off to L.A. But I cannot stress how difficult it was to find out anything about the Johnsons, let alone the album. Googling was very difficult. Uh, I'm sure you can understand how frustrating it can be to try to search details on the surname Johnson, especially when everybody in the family has very common first names. Even if you Google the phrase, singing Johnson family, you'll get at least one other group of the same name from different regions, different eras. Having said that, I was able to get somewhere I managed to find Indianapolis area newspaper classified ads mentioning the Singing Johnson family. In fact, um, let me get those up in front of me right here. Uh, the Muncie Evening Press, uh, May 14th, 1966. There's an ad for the Singing Johnson family with the picture of the Johnsons from the cover photo of that self-titled album. Featured during the 10 and 10.50 a.m. Sunday services at Temple Baptist Church will be the Singing Johnson family from Indianapolis. Let's see, there's the Indianapolis Star from Saturday, December 9th, 1967. There's an ad for the biggest gospel sing of the new year, 1968, coming to Indianapolis. The Southern Gospel Music Convention at Cadle Tabernacle. Monday night, January 1st, and Tuesday, January 2nd, 7 p.m. each night. Buy one ticket, good for both nights. There are two pictures here. One is of the Singing Johnson family. It's the same picture that I found inside the record, and it has all four of the Johnson kids. Uh, to the left of that picture in this ad is the Prophet's Quartet, which has five men in it. Um, you may have seen, I, I know this kind of stuff goes around Facebook uh, as memes and things, but you'll see album covers that are claiming that a group is a quartet and you'll really see five people in it. Here's the explanation behind that. Southern gospel singing groups very commonly had 
four people in them, and ergo were called quartets. Well, it eventually became that when you're talking about quartet, you're talking about the genre, the style, the sound, and not necessarily the number of people. So if you see, say, the Prophet's Quartet, it doesn't mean that there are four members. It means that you are hearing quartet-style music from them. It's kind of weird, but that's how it goes. What else do I have here? Another from the Indianapolis Star from two weeks later. It's uh, the Southern Gospel Music Convention. It's basically the same thing, but different uh, advertisement, really. The picture is of the Happy Goodman family. There are uh, six of them. Indianapolis Star, November 23rd, 1968. Uh, Victory Baptist Church, 5350 Ashurst, 6400 Road 37. Reverend Charles E. Smith, pastor of the Singing Johnson family at 9.30 and 10.35 a.m. Uh, so we have an ad there from 1968. And then another one from 1972. The Kokomo Tribune, November 4th, 1972. Faith Baptist Church. The Singing Johnson Family, Indianapolis Baptist Temple. So it looks like Indianapolis Baptist Temple is their home church, or at least it was at the time. So yeah, I was able to find five newspaper clippings. Now the thing is, the churches that were advertised in these clippings, I actually sent emails to the ones that I was able to track down email addresses for. Unfortunately, though, I... Never heard back. I only got a couple of auto confirmations. Thank you for your email. But alas, the emails went unanswered. But I had somewhat of a breakthrough recently. It occurred to me that there are Facebook groups and pages dedicated to residents of individual towns. Case in point, I belong to one that's about my hometown of Joliet. So I looked for a group dedicated to Southport, Indiana, and darned if I didn't find one. When the moderator approved my request to join, I posted about the album and asked if anybody could point me in the right direction. Well, the next day, I got a private message from someone named Donna. She said that Harry Johnson was her stepfather for 45 years. Donna said he was, and I quote, the greatest man ever. I was excited not only to hear back from someone in the know, but also to hear nice things about Harry. Being a regular old rock and roll fan, I know all too much about the horrors of family singing group dads such as Murray Wilson, Joe Jackson, and Bud Cowsill. I got some more information from Donna, I hope without probing too much. I didn't want to take up too much of her time or get too nosy. I mean, how would you feel if a stranger from Chicago suddenly started bugging you about an album your extended family recorded over 50 years ago? Harry and Betty Johnson divorced, I think, in the 70s, and Harry married a woman named Norma in 1977. The fourth Johnson child in the photograph I mentioned earlier is named Jay. And apparently today, he has an amazing singing voice. I asked Donna what made the Johnsons get together to sing besides their obvious love for God. Donna told me that Harry Sr. loved to sing, and in fact, he sang tenor in a men's vocal group, and a recording of said group was played at Harry's funeral. Harry, by the way, died on April 4th, 2016. 
He ran the New Way, uh, N-U Way Press for over 50 years. Um, interestingly, New Way did not produce the album cover, uh, unless it happened to be named C&J Printing Services at the time. According to the obituary, he was born on May 15th, 1928, which means, if you don't want to do the math, that he would have been not quite 88 years old when he died. I found out that Betty Johnson died on January 5th, 2021, three months shy of her 93rd birthday. Interestingly, she went to Olivet Nazarene College in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Not only did I spend the first 11 years of my life in Bourbonnet, but I also went to grade school literally across the parking lot from Olivet. Donna tells me that all of the Johnson kids still sing, and in fact, Karen, who currently lives in Lansing, Michigan, released at least one album on her own. Sharon Johnson, uh, now Sharon Finlay, lives in Tennessee, and Bud and Jay still live in Indianapolis. Between the two of them, Harry and Norma Johnson had eight kids. That's about everything I was able to find out. Donna told me that Norma was happy to hear that someone was asking about the album, and she made it known that she'd be happy to answer any questions privately on Facebook, but sadly my messages to Norma remained unanswered. I told Donna that, as per her suggestion, I was trying to reach her mom, but I heard nothing back from either Donna or Norma. I decided not to further pursue it, though, because, again, it might be that they may feel uneasy about some stranger trying to dig up some details. Donna did tell me that Harry kept two copies of the album at home, one to listen to and the other to stay sealed, so uh, that tells me that at least three copies of this album existed at one point. But let me talk about that album, actually. It consists of the Johnsons singing, unsurprisingly, hymns, a cappella in multi-part harmony. That's not a huge surprise if you know that Harry was a big fan of both gospel and barbershop music. The tight harmonies certainly demonstrate a barbershop influence. It's definitely a cappella. There wasn't any musical accompaniment that got mixed out. Uh, the rhythms are not quite consistent. They change it up very, very gradually. It definitely sounds like there is no timekeeping of any kind other than maybe somebody acting as a conductor. The songs on side one are in this order. I'll be there. I'll be searching for you. What a day. I'll meet you in the morning. Ship of Zion. And I'm coming. Side two contains He'll Pilot Me. Don't Send Those Kids to Sunday School. The Joy of Serving the Lord. House of the Lord. Is There Room in Your Heart? When I Think of Calvary. And Until Then. Interestingly, the label shortens the titles Don't Send Those Kids to Sunday School and Is There Room in Your Heart to simply Don't Send Those Kids and Is There Room, respectively. The liner notes explain that the Johnsons arranged those songs in the order they appear for a reason. Now, personally, though, I would have put together an Isle trilogy. That is, put all the Isle songs together. I'll be there. I'll be searching for you. I'll meet you in the morning. Four of the songs, specifically I'm Coming, The Joy of Serving the Lord, Is There Room in Your Heart, and When I Think of Calvary, are written by Bill and Gloria Gaither, legendary Southern gospel singer-songwriters. Ship of Zion doesn't bear any resemblance to any other version of the song I was able to find on YouTube and other sources. The songwriting credit simply lists Weatherington, uh, no first name, and uh, that person is listed as the arranger. Harry Sr., I'm guessing, has a brief solo in this song, 
which is the only religious song I ever heard that mentions outer space. And I think that's Mama Betty soloing on the joy of serving the Lord. Remember how I said that I doubt the Johnsons would have sent the master all the way to a Hollywood record label for distribution? Well, one reason that I say that is, uh, well, I'm guessing the album was recorded on a tight budget. There are some off notes throughout the album, which makes me think they didn't have time or resources to do retakes. Also, even though this is obviously a very regional album that didn't see distribution outside of Indianapolis... The production of the album was approached very professionally. You have front artwork, and the back cover has a pretty detailed write-up courtesy of David G. Shepard. Also, there are technical details about the recording. Put all that together with the fact that the composers are properly credited, it appears that the Johnsons went all out to make sure that not only were they trying to produce a quality product, but they were also trying to make everything nice and legal. I would wager that the album came about when the Johnsons were performing somewhere, and someone suggested that they look into doing a record. Back in the 60s, home recording equipment wasn't terribly commonplace, except maybe for low-to-medium-quality reel-to-reel decks, so it might not have been reasonable for people to bring tape recorders to the Johnson performances. So the next best option? Record an album! I can imagine there may have been some fundraising to pay for the studio time, and maybe put a price point on the album that would cover additional costs. Now, as for my personal thoughts on the Singing Johnson Family's album, well, as I mentioned in the introductory episode, I'm giving each item that I cover in this podcast a score. That score will be based on the various things that would make you want to buy a so-called weird record. Local interest, historical interest weirdness factor, uniqueness, and just overall enjoyability. Each factor will be given a score of 1 to 5 inclusive, 1 being the lowest, of course, 5 being the highest. For local interest, I rate the Singing Johnson family a 5. The album was recorded by a family from the South Indianapolis suburbs in a recording studio in Kokomo, Indiana. Four of the songs were composed by Bill Gaither, who's from the North Indianapolis suburbs and the Johnsons performed in the Indianapolis area. Plus, all the evidence shows that the distribution of the album was likely limited to Indianapolis. It's hard to beat that level of local interest. When looking at the historical interest, I'd rate the album of three. The music itself isn't terribly a sign of the times. Southern gospel never was terribly uncommon, nor is it now. However, just the fact that the album came out when it did... It's kind of a sign of the times. Again, it's likely that the album was recorded during a time when doing your own recordings was not easy or inexpensive, or else the Johnsons could have just made their own at-home or in-person recordings and handed them out to people who wanted them. The overall sound is professional yet primitive. 
If it had been recorded, say, now, the sound quality would have been much better, even if done at home, and likely would have been mixed in stereo. Uh, I failed to mention this earlier, but the album is mixed in mono. Now, in terms of the album's general weirdness, uh, I'm only going to give it a two. Honestly, the album itself isn't really all that weird, at least for the genre. It was recorded and printed professionally, and the songs are, for the most part, pretty mainstream for the genre. Singing families aren't all that uncommon, either. Really, the only truly weird thing about the album is the label. It's a plain pale blue label with a very basic sans-serif font face. Motif Records didn't even have a logo anywhere. My uniqueness rating for the Singing Johnson family is most definitely a 5. Search for this album online and I can almost promise you that the hits you find are because of me. You'll find a blog entry I wrote many years ago. In fact, I have a feeling that maybe when word got out that someone was asking about the album, someone in the family found that blog entry and uh, warned everybody to just ignore my requests. Uh, frankly, I don't blame them. Uh, I did go a bit overboard with the silliness in my write-up. I even had to add the album to Discogs.com myself. You know you have something rare when Discogs.com doesn't have a listing for it. And short of actually driving the three and a half hours to Southport, Indiana, you just won't find much out there about this album outside of this podcast. Heck, even this podcast doesn't begin to tell the whole story. But how enjoyable is the album? Mind you, I'm not a fan of religious music, uh, although one of the most amazing concerts I've ever been to was a Phil Keggy show. But I tried my darndest to be objective. For enjoyability, I rate the Singing Johnson Family three. I didn't know what to expect when I bought the album. But seriously, the Johnsons were excellent singers, and except for the sour spots I alluded to before, their harmonies are pretty dang tight. Seriously, the Johnsons are a talented bunch. So why only a three for personal enjoyment? To be honest, after a few songs, you kind of get the point. Yes, the songs are different, but after a while, they all kind of sound the same. They kind of blend together. Also, the reverb, uh, undoubtedly put there to simulate the acoustics of a church building, that reverb just makes it sound a little bit creepy. Again, the singing is really good, but you'll probably get bored after a few songs. So, five for local interest, three for historical interest, two for weirdness, five for uniqueness, and three for enjoyability. If I did my math correctly, and I usually do, the Singing Johnson family scores 18 out of a possible 25. I will be maintaining essentially a weird records chart, ranking the records as this podcast goes on. Obviously, there are going to be some ties, only a range of 5 to 25 points, and I can tell you right now, I have more than, say, 20 weird records I'm going to review on this podcast. The tiebreakers will always be my personal preference. Basically, I'm going to say, okay, how glad am I that I have this particular record in my collection? That's going to be the deciding factor. Now, I was about to put the finishing touches on this episode until I did uh, just a quick last-minute Google search for Singing Johnson Family and Southport, just to see if I could gather some last-minute information. Shockingly, I landed on another Singing Johnson Family album being sold on Amazon for $24.98. I didn't know they did another album, and Donna didn't know either. And you know what I did just for all of you? I bought it. The vendor appeared to be from the Indianapolis area, so I asked if she knew anything about the album or the Johnsons. 
Unfortunately, she wasn't able to give me any information. She bought the album among thousands acquired via thrift stores, estate sales, and independent collectors. The name of this other Singing Johnson Family album, by the way, your favorites by the Singing Johnson Family. I'm free, praise the Lord, free at last. The album cover is different. Uh, It's a kind of gradient purple with a slanted white cross in the middle, and there's no picture of the family on the front. There is a treble clef, uh, in case you couldn't tell it was a musical album. The back cover, there are liner notes by Carl Willey, and three pictures of the Johnsons during the sessions, apparently at least. This time, the littlest Johnson, Jay Johnson, is pictured in one of them, so he apparently is on the album. And looking at the black and white pictures on the back, it looks like they're having a good time recording it. On side one, you'll have I'll Walk Into That Sunset, I'm Free, A Little Bit of Sunshine, Jesus, I Believe What You Said, Old Brother Jonah, I'm Almost Home, and then on side two, you have Circuit Riding Preacher, It's Your Life, Heaven's Jubilee, When Jesus Breaks the Morning, God Took Away My Yesterdays, and But God Can... This album is not on the elusive Motif Records, but Crusade Enterprises Record and Album Company out of Flora, Illinois, a small town about 50 miles east of St. Louis. Crusade Enterprises actually still exists as a Christian entertainment company. I'm going to guess that this other album was recorded and or released in 1967, basically going by the newspaper clippings I could find on newspapers.com. Harry Sr. and Betty are not mentioned by name on Carl Willie's liner notes. They're simply referred to as mom and dad. According to those liner notes, Jay Johnson is now seven years old, and Harry Jr., who's simply referred to as Harry and not Bud, uh, the latter of which he is usually called to this day, it says that Harry Jr. is a senior in high school, and he was only 13 when the previous album was recorded, so I'm going to guess that the previous album was done in either 1962 or 1963, and this one is from 1967, maybe 1968. The notes say that Harry Jr. or Bud is the baritone voice. He has a booming baritone voice. And if you want to judge from just a picture, you would never guess that Bud, especially at that age, could have such a booming voice. But it's Definitely ringing out like a bell on the recordings. Now, Brother Jonah, well, he felt so mighty when he went and he got on board. But the thunder, it began to rumble and he started to fear the wrath of the Lord. I guess um, a few comments about the songs are probably warranted. So, uh, I'll Walk Into That Sunset is a pretty catchy opener. Old Brother Jonah, incorrectly listed as Old Brother Noah on the back cover, is just plain fun, really. Sharon Johnson shines on I'm Almost Home. Circuit Riding Preacher is basically a rewrite of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and it's apparently a mainstay in Southern Gospel music. And you may actually catch yourself singing along to But God Can. I guess I'd better give this album the same treatment I gave the Singing Johnson Family's self-titled album. 
For local interest, this album also gets a five. Again, it's very local. We're talking Southport, Indiana, recorded in Indianapolis, distributed by a downstate Illinois company. If you do just a little bit of research, you're going to learn a lot about the localness of the album. Historical interest, also a three, as with the previous album. Nothing significant. The only additional history is you get to listen to the Johnsons maybe uh, four years later. Weirdness, I rate a two for your favorites, uh, for the same reasons I gave the same rating to the previous album. The album scores a five for uniqueness. And yeah, I know so far it sounds like I'm copying and pasting from the Johnsons' other album, but this album I think has the same uniqueness. Same comments as before. I have the only copy that I know of in existence, although I'm sure there are more. In fact, given that I was able to find out some information about the record label and saw that Discogs.com actually has some other titles on the label, there are most certainly more copies out there. I'd imagine there are copies among the Johnson family, but still, Your Favorites is such a generally uncommon album that I actually had to make its entry in Discogs.com myself. What about Enjoyability? Actually, I found Your Favorites to be more enjoyable than the self-titled album, so I'm going to rate this one a 4 for enjoyability. I mentioned how on the other album you could hear a few flaws in the performance. Well, that's not the case with Your Favorites. Each track is absolutely flawless performance-wise. As you could expect with the previous album, the harmonies are absolutely dead on. And I think there's a better variety in the songs on the album. Each song has its own unique properties. Different singers are highlighted. Each song has an arrangement that offers something different. And it truly does sound like the family was having fun recording the album. I did not get bored as the songs progressed, unlike with the other album. So the too long didn't listen, as it were. (laughs) Your Favorites by the Singing Johnson Family gets a five for local interest, three for historical interest, two for weirdness, five for uniqueness, and four for enjoyability. Uh, At least personally, I enjoyed it more than the self-titled album. Part of it is that there's a greater variety. Part of it is that at least my copy is in stereo, while the self-titled album is in mono. I generally prefer stereo over mono. And it's especially nice with your favorites because different singers are on different microphones and panned to different sides of the stereo spectrum so you can focus better on individual parts of the harmony stack. So 5, 3, 2, 5, and 4, if I did my math right, which again I usually do, that adds up to 19. So this scores one point higher than the Singing Johnson Family's self-titled album. And I gotta say, When I was listening to Your Favorites, I found myself smiling a lot and sometimes just genuinely stunned at how great the harmonies are. Yeah, I'm a rock and roll guy. I like the Beatles, the Doors, the Beach Boys, Jimi Hendrix, but man, I'm also a sucker for vocal harmony. Anybody who loves, say, the Bee Gees, Hanson, or the Beach Boys, they're going to tell you that there's a certain something about vocal harmony sung by families. You could have a group of brothers sing something in harmony, and then another group of amazingly talented singers who are not related sing the exact same thing, same arrangement, same dynamics, but the family group will have something special that you just don't get with the other group. And I think that's part of the charm of the Singing Johnson family. 
Between these two albums, there are a lot of songs written by Bill and or Gloria Gaither, who are legends in the world of Southern gospel. I don't know if it's that the Johnsons simply were Gaither fans, or perhaps they wanted to pay tribute to their fellow Indy-area Hoosiers. Whatever the case, an observation I made personally when listening to the albums is that the Johnson family obviously has a very strong devotion to their religion, and I believe they do to this day. From what I understand, the kind of devotion that they show is uniquely American. You don't get that in, say, Europe. So not only do the Johnson albums give you a piece of Indiana locality, but also a slice of Americana. If you like vocal harmony in Barbershop, you'd probably enjoy either of these Johnson family albums. If you like Southern Gospel, then you'd probably love the singing Johnson family. Whatever the case, there's absolutely zero question that each of these Johnson singers had an amazing singing voice. And from what I'm told, the kids still do to this day. Before I get to the ending of this episode, let me go over some record collecting tips with you that I believe are pertinent especially to this episode. The nature of the two Singing Johnson Family albums, well, okay, maybe not the albums themselves, but rather how I managed to acquire them, made me think that for this episode, I should talk about something that I think is very important when handling records, cleaning them. Given that I got the first Singing Johnson Family album at a store that specialized in vintage clothes, and ergo not a place where they necessarily know how to properly handle records, and the other Singing Johnson Family album I got from somebody who basically bought albums in bulk from various sources, it was especially important that these records got a decent cleaning. The truth, however, is that you should clean your records before you give them a first listening, whether or not you bought them used or brand new right from the record company itself. You'd be surprised at how much gunk and debris can come off even the newest record in mint condition. At the very least, you should get a reliable record brush with cleaning fluid, Personally, I use the RCA Disc Washer Record Cleaning Kit, which comes with a brush and fluid. The way it works is you spray some fluid lengthways along one side of the brush, angle the brush slightly with the fluid down, and then spin the record under it so you coat the surface of the record with the fluid, and at the same time you're wiping dust and other particles off of it. After a few rotations, I tilt the brush in the other direction, the dry end, and spin the record again to wipe the fluid off the record. Now, record cleaning brushes such as the dishwasher are good at cleaning the surface of a record, but if you want to get a little bit deeper into the groove, you'll need something a bit more powerful. My personal recommendation is the Spin Clean Record Washer Kit. It's a yellow plastic container that you fill with distilled water, and then you mix in a cap full of Spin Clean's record cleaning fluid. Inside the Spin Clean, you have two brushes that are locked in place, and they're very close together facing each other. Then there are two rollers that you have to put into position. There are various notches across the device, spaced apart depending on whether you're cleaning a 7-inch, a 10-inch, or a 12-inch record. So you place the record on the rollers that are properly spaced apart, and then between the brushes, and the record will sink down enough so that the entire portion of the record from the outer edge to the inner edge gets submerged in the fluid. If you get the label wet, don't worry, it's safe. You spin the record three complete revolutions in one direction, and then you spin the record three complete revolutions in the other direction. Then you take the record out and you use one of the soft cloths that come with the spin clean to wipe off excess water. I use a dish strainer to uh, let the records air dry, which doesn't really take a long time. 
I usually run a record through the spin clean before the first time I play it, especially if I buy the record used. <laughs> Recently, I was running my dad's old singles from the 50s and 60s through my spin clean, and I noticed that when I was wiping them down with the cloth, the cloth had some yellow spots on it, which I realized was years of tobacco smoke buildup. You do not want that stuff on your records or on your stylus. There are other record cleaning products out there, different types of record washers, vacuum cleaners, brushes, and who knows what else, but I really can't comment on them personally because I haven't used them. But I probably should address a very popular method of record cleaning, the ultrasonic cleaner. The reputable ultrasonic cleaners, such as the Degritter, are quite expensive. While the RCA kit costs under $20 for both the brush and the cleaner, and the Spin Clean costs about $70 for the device, the rollers, the brushes, the cleaner, and the cloths, you'll be looking at spending literally thousands of dollars for a reputable ultrasonic cleaner. Those who use those expensive cleaners swear that the results are absolutely stunning and worth the price. Sometimes when people shell out for those things, they try to recoup the cost by offering ultrasonic record cleaning services. For example, I know of a record store who will run your records through uh, one of those ultrasonic cleaners for $5 a pop. Fairly recently, there have been so-called ultrasonic cleaners popping up whose price tags are in the hundreds rather than the thousands, but many vinyl experts say that while those cheaper options do a somewhat good job, they don't come near the results of the expensive models, and uh, people who use them say, yeah, you get what you pay for. I can't personally vouch for ultrasonic cleaners, but I can vouch for the disc washer and spin clean products. Many record stores have those available for sale, but in the event either your record store does not have them, or sadly you don't have a record store in your area, you can go to this podcast's website at myweirdrecords.fab4it.com. At the very top of the page, there's a link called Stuff I Recommend, and then go to Cleaning Products, and there are links to these products on Amazon. And if you order via the links on my site, I will get a small chunk of the sale at no extra cost to you. Now, those are my record collecting tips for now. And that, my friends, wraps up the Singing Johnson family. Two albums worth. Do you have any thoughts on either of these albums or weird records in general? You can reach me via email at myweirdrecords at fab4it.com, and fab4it is spelled F-A-B, the number four, and then it.com. And just a reminder, this podcast also has a website located at myweirdrecords at fab4it.com. One of the reasons I'm into weird records, by the way, is preservation. These are historical items of some value, some extent, so I want to preserve them and do whatever I can to keep them from being forgotten to history. So as I prepare a weird record to discuss in this podcast, I check out YouTube, see if it's posted there. If not, I post it myself. On that website are the show notes to every episode, including this one. And in fact, you can go to the show notes for this episode to get links to YouTube playlists for both of the Singing Johnson family's albums discussed in this episode. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram under the handle My Weird Records, and you can find this podcast on Facebook as well by searching for My Weird Record Collection or by going directly to facebook.com slash myweirdrecords. Sounds and music in this podcast remain the properties of their respective copyright holders and are used for commentary and review. No infringement is intended. 
Special thanks to Donna Carter. Also thanks to Kevin Zurb, who designed this podcast's logo. You can visit Kevin online at Zurbinator.com. Coming up next on My Weird Record Collection is something truly unusual, a transcription record of the grand opening of a now-defunct discount store. Thank you for listening, and I can't wait to talk to you again soon. In the meantime, please support your local record store if you are lucky enough to have one. Do they sell you a dance? And exaggerate your mouth movements. <laughs>